Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. People would try to take their home from them, and over and over and over and over, we kind of see Israel beat to the ground. Really, except through that David and Solomon era. Beyond that, they're beat to the ground. But tonight, we learn that something a lot more sinister is happening. They're not being enslaved, they're not being, their home's not being taken away from them. Tonight, the threat of utter annihilation is at hand. Haman is going to seek, the enemy of the Jews is going to seek to annihilate every single last one of them. So, so I want to be clear as we kind of muse over the, the villains of Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and, and Kung Fu Panda, we need to realize that this is a very dark chapter in Scripture. This is a very dark chapter. And yet we are going to find hope and peace in the providential Lord of heaven and earth who is accomplishing his good purposes. Now, I don't speak Latin, nor do I know it well, but does anybody know the motto of the Reformation? It's in Latin. Post tenebris lux, which means after darkness, light. I'm sorry, I didn't see who saw that. After darkness, light. Tonight, we're in the midst of darkness in this chapter. But chapters 4, 5, and 6 are coming in which a light will dawn. After darkness, light, and the hope of light. Quick recap so far in Esther 1 and 2, we saw the rise, not the rise to power, but we just saw the powerful king Ahasuerus and how he really is brought to this, to, to, to the shame through a series of events. One was the queen, Queen Vashti, refusing to oblige to his lustful demands. We see him lose to the Greek empire, not only lose to an empire, but really lose his world dominion. Humbled, seemingly humbled, the king ends up wishing for his queen back, but he remembers that he made an irrevocable command that makes it so she can never come back again. He banished her. The solution then will, ha- will be, okay, I'll, I'll bring all the young, beautiful virgins and, and I will determine who shall be queen in Vashti's place. And as we know in God's providence, Esther is chosen. Now, as we turn to chapter 3, mark this, five years have passed. Five years have passed. Our outline tonight is simple. Well, kind of simple. It's two points, but the preeminence and predicament of the enemy of the Jews. The preeminence and the predicament of the enemy of the Jews, point one. Point two, the plot and the ploy 
of the enemy of the Jews. The plot and the ploy of the enemy of the Jews. Our first point, let's read verses 1 to 6. Chapter 3, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And and when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. This chapter opens with with the same way chapter 2 opened, after these things. Again, this is an indicator that time has passed. This is the author. He's transitioning. He's closing the chapter on one part of the story. He's opening it on another. In chapter 2, verse 16, we learn that that Esther's night with the king took place in the seventh year of his reign. And now Haman's plot, we read in in chapter 3, verse 7, takes place in the twelfth year of the reign. So simple addition, subtraction. It's Five years have passed, or around that, around that amount of time. Five years have passed. But this chapter, well, okay, so, yeah, we, we see that Esther's been queen for five years, but again, this chapter actually is not about Esther. We don't really see her in this chapter. It is about this one wicked man, Haman, and the author wastes no time to introduce him. Right? King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Just, we, we've talked about this, but, but the term Agagite ought to send shivers down any Jew's spine. They hated Agagites. Agagites hated the Jews. This is where their arch enemy. Exodus 17, the Amalekites come against weakened Israel as they're coming out of the promised land. And they attack them. And, and as their punishment, God determines in his sovereign will that the Amalekites shall be blotted out from the face of the earth. Hundreds of years later, 1 Samuel 17, God calls Saul, King Saul, to destroy the Amalekites, every last one of them, woman, child, animal, everything, don't plunder their property, everything must die. Saul, thinking he was smarter than God, took the king of Amalekite hostage named Agag. And so now we see Haman, a descendant of that king, Agag. And he is making it very difficult for the Jewish people once again. Esther and Mordecai have to deal, and really the rest of the Jews have to deal and reap the consequences of this disobedience that happened hundreds of years prior. And listen, 
friends, God, God calls us to complete obedience, not partial obedience. And I know that's a hard one, because I think we often can feel good about ourselves, like oh, we obeyed God partially, when in reality, God calls us to obey him fully. That there are, as, there are, as we see here, consequences to sin, and those consequences might live on for a very long time, as we see here. Sure, absolutely, that guys, there is abundant grace in Christ, but we have to reap what we sow. And, and Mordecai and Esther and the rest of you are reaping what Saul sown, sowed, sowed. I think that's correct. Whatever, you know what I'm trying to say. Now, we don't know why Haman is promoted. The text doesn't really tell us. He just is. It is it's what God has ordained, right? Haman is promoted. And the, and the text literally means Haman was made great. He's number one, preeminent under the king, of course. Haman is powerful. He's second in command over roughly 50 million people. And we don't, we don't just, we see, we, we see that they don't just, the king doesn't just promote Haman, but he calls, he calls his servants and all people to bow down and pay homage to him or fall prostrate before him, depending on the version. Very similar terms, bow down, pay homage. And there, it, it's very similar, but, but there is a slight difference. I think we can understand it this way. To bow down was a sign of reverence. To fall prostrate was a sign of worship. God is calling, excuse me, Ahasuerus wants people to worship Haman. And Haman loves this. It's, it's just pumping up his ego like a hot air balloon, right? He walks down the street and people are just falling on the ground worshiping him. He is the preeminent Haman. He loves it. But there's a predicament. Verse 2 ends with these words, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Once again, this small word but changes the entire flow of the passage. In chapter 1, when God, when, uh, when Ahasuerus tells Vashti to come to him, Vashti, Queen Vashti, it says, but she refused. The flow of the passage is changed. And now here, as the pride and the pomp of Ahasuerus is halted by that, by that queen, so now the pride and the pomp of Haman is halted by Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down and worship him. And, and both Ahasuerus and Haman are filled with this same kind of fury. It's the same word in chapter 1 as it is here. It's fury, it's vengeance, it's animosity, it's, it's, it's white-hot anger. Both of them, Ahasuerus and Haman, unveil the lie to us. that pride Unveil the lie that pride tells us. Look, pride deceives us into thinking that we are very strong. We're all that and a bag of chips, right? Like, like we got it all. But really, the prideful are weak, and as we know in Scripture, they can come crashing and will come crashing down. True strength is found in humility. 
It's found in what scripture calls weak, or meekness. Meekness. John MacArthur says this about meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. It's power under control. Those who exalt themselves like Haman will be humbled. Or as we know, Haman, you'll get hung, but... Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, whereas those who humble themselves will be exalted. Our Lord teaches in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, what? For they shall inherit the earth. There's your reward. True reward is for those who humble, who are humble and are meek before the Lord. And, and more than that, any reward that the humble and the meek receive, they cast it right back down at the feet of Christ because it was his grace alone that caused it to be so in us in the first place. Mordecai would rather face the wrath of the king than bow to the likes of Haman the Agagite. Nothing, no indication in the text here, by the way, suggests that like, Mordecai is being super religious. The, the guy's just like, no, I'm not going to bow to him. I won't. So there very well could be pride in, in, in Mordecai's heart here as well. He will not bow to Haman the Agagite. Despite the, the urging of his colleagues, he's like, no, I won't. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew, right? I, I'm not going to bow to that man. Let me, let me tell you, colleagues, the history I have with this man, with this people. I'm not going to bow to Haman. Haman learns. He's, he's angry. He's filled with this rage. And, and, and it's one thing. And Haman's like, it's one thing for a Persian to not bow to me. But, but a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, nonetheless. We learned that Mordecai was a Benjamite. The same tribe that Saul was from. Haman would not have it. Haman truthfully hated Mordecai. He disdained, the text says, or despised to punish Mordecai alone. The term here in verse 6, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. The term here in Hebrew, it's, it's pronounced bizarre. And it literally means to be vile or considered worthless. In other words, Haman, Haman hated Mordecai so much that he thought it'd be a worthless endeavor to just punish him. Something more had to be done. Something far more sinister, far more evil. The annihilation and destruction of all his people. Some accounts say that there were up to 15 million Jews in the provinces of Persia and Media. To put that in perspective, 6 million Jews died at the hands of the Nazis. We're talking up to two and a half times that amount here. This is a very dark day. And so once again, we are made aware of this holy war that the serpent wages against the seed of the woman. And yet, we know the end of this story and the ultimate story. And we know that despite 
the efforts and the war that the serpent wages despite the fact that he will nip at his heel, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Haman will not prevail. God has determined that his people, that that the seed will come. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Point to the plot and the ploy of the enemy of the Jews. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lot before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that... Lost my place. Let it be decreed... Um, losing my place here. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the hands of the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Haman rises to fame, gains preeminence, faces the predicament of Mordecai, and now he lays all his cards on the table. He wants to kill and annihilate all the Jews. We read here that Haman decides to cast Pur in the first month of the year. Essentially, he is, he's throwing dice down. He's going to cast lots. That's how he's going to determine when this annihilation is going to take place. What Haman leaves to fate, God determines in his divine providence. I'm going to say that again. What Haman leaves to fate, God already determined. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Yeah, Haman didn't know that. God determines in his divine sovereignty that the lot is cast for the 12th month, which, by the way, the 12th month is 11 months from when he throws it, making all this time for the king to have a softened heart to not destroy the Jews. You see how God does that? See, the the lot could have been cast down, and it could have been the next day. Haman would have liked that. But Haman would have to wait 11 long months before he could carry out his judgment. God knows what he is doing. He is the one orchestrating all the events in human history for his ultimate glory. Christians do not believe in fate. Christians do not believe in fate. We stand upon and hope in the providence of God. Charles Spurgeon says this, what is fate? Fate is this, whatever is, must be. 
But there's a difference between that and providence. Providence says, whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without purpose. Everything in this world is working for some great end. Fate does not say that. The doctrine of providence is not whatever is must be, but rather what is works together for the good of our race and especially for the good of the chosen people of God. End quote. What Haman leaves to chance, God is orchestrating this great deliverance for his people. He, he's doing this even, even though we don't see him, even though he's invisible, he's doing it that his people might trust him. And, and this is the history of Israel and the history of our lives. God is intentionally bringing something about so that they would trust him, worship him, rely on him, depend on him, not on self. Guys, I am convinced the longer I am a Christian that God is intentionally and sovereignly working out Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 in our lives. That he will bring whatever he must bring into our lives according to his will so that we trust in him alone and not lean on our own understanding. Right? That, that's what we're, we're not supposed to lean on our own understanding. God is going to bring whatever he wills into our lives no matter how hard it might seem to accomplish that. We, we, we need to come to grips with this as Christians, right? Because it, it's not if you face trials, it's when you face trials. You've heard that. It's when you face trials. God has the divine prerogative to do whatever he desires in our lives. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. He's the preeminent one. Not Haman. Isaiah 45 if you've not read the book of Isaiah recently, go and read it tonight. You can stay up late. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun that there is no one besides me. From the rising to the setting of the sun, that there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, producing peace and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. God does all these things in order that his people might know, in order that we might know that he is God, that we would trust in him, that we would worship him and rely on him. Even now, through the wickedness and vengeance of Haman, God is going to accomplish his purposes. Psalm 76.10 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Do you believe that? The, wrath, God, the psalmist is saying, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The greatest amount of wickedness that man could bring, God can turn to his ultimate praise. I mean, do we not see that at the cross, right? That's our ultimate picture of that. The greatest amount of wickedness that man could conjure up, killing the spotless lamb of God, what does God do? He turns and saves countless through his sacrifice. Haman is shrewd and conniving. 
and he's going to manipulate the king. He's going to say things like, there's a lot of these Jews that aren't obeying your law. They're everywhere. They're unassimilated. They're all spread out the kingdom. King, it's, it's better if you just get rid of them. It's not to your profit to tolerate them. Which is sad because the reality is we don't have a history of disobedience in this book except for Haman refusing to bow and um, Esther coming into the king's courts unannounced. Beyond that, we have every reason to believe that the Jews lived obediently. But Haman's going to lie anyways. Haman says, it's not, to the, it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. But king, I have something that can profit you. Verse 9, 10,000 talents of silver. Let's be clear, Haman is lying. He does not have this kind of money. This is the number that Jesus used when he was teaching on the unforgiving servant, by the way, which was supposed to represent the unmeasurable debt of sin that we have. It's an amount that really, it's like so much, you're like, seriously? I mean, I think some... Uh, numbers that I was out 300 tons of silver. That's like an entire loaded jumbo jet 747 of silver. I'm sorry, Haman. You, you don't have that kind of money. But guys, this is the thing. This is, by the way, this tells us that Jesus was, it, well, of course Jesus is right, but, but his words prove true in saying that like uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The king loved this idea so much that he just blindly accepts the offer. He, he doesn't uh, he doesn't ask, hey, where are these, who are these people you're talking about? Do you really have that kind of money? 300 tons of silver? Really, Haman? You, your family, you have that kind of money that you're going to pay me? None of that. King, greedy, blindly accepts it. <clears throat> and so verse 10, the enemy of the Jews is given the signet ring, the king's permission, the funds to do to this, quote, certain people whatever he desired, which as we read in verse 13, was to have all the Jews destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Verse 12, because I forgot to read it. Verse 12, Then the king's scribe were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. To further add to the darkness of this whole scene, we read that the edict was handed down and read by all on the 13th day of the first month. Any Bible buffs out there, as much as we love to you know, read our Bibles, gentlemen who are giving announcements, right? Read our Bibles more. What day is that before? Does anyone know? 
thank you. What day is that? This, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm just curious if you're new because I didn't. So, Passover. And so here the Jews are about to, ready to be ready to celebrate Passover and this edict is handed down that says they're about to all be annihilated in 11 months. Rather than celebrating deliverance, they mourn that they are dead people walking. And more than that, it's going to be coming by the hands of their fellow man, their neighbors. Haman is going to make it a law that the residents of Persia are to slay their Jewish neighbors. And to encourage them to do so, he's like, go plunder their property, take home their possessions. I said it before, I'll say it again. This is a wicked man in a dark day. So what can we conclude from this passage? What light can be seen and clung to amid the darkness? What chance do the righteous have against Haman? The psalmist said, speaking of the wicked, his ways prosper at all times. We see this today, don't we? If you want to get ahead in life, I've got one thing for you. Compromise your morals. The wicked, as it seems, the wicked and the wicked and wickedness succeed. Psalm twelve eight says the wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the children or the sons of men. It says if the words of Isaiah are truer than ever, Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so, that was Isaiah 5, verse 20. So what do we do in such a culture, right? In a culture that really worships evil, parades evil around, loves evil and wickedness. And let's be honest, they would annihilate anything God-related if they could. Psalm 11, I believe, has a very clear answer. And it's a short psalm. In Yahweh, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can they do when, when the draw bowstring is pulled back? And the arrow is about to be released and plunged through the heart of the righteous. Well, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, if everything that is good and right and true is being obliterated around us, like the culture we live in, the sentence of death is on our heads, what can the righteous do? Continuing in Psalm 11. Answer, Yahweh is on, in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, sounds like Haman, 
his soul hates. May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright shall behold his face. That is what the righteous can do. We can stand upon the truths of God's sovereignty. That despite what the world may conjure up, He alone is on the throne. Nothing catches him off guard. No one can pull the wool over his eyes. God is accomplishing all things for his glory and for our good. He has countless reasons not to tolerate us. And yet scripture says he counts not one sin against his children. Two, we stand upon the truth of the loving discipline from our God. That he does indeed test us. He tests the righteous. But Hebrews 12 tells us it's for our good that we share in his holiness. It's good that God is testing you. Three, we stand upon the truth that one day this this sinner, saved by grace alone in Christ alone, this sinner that has been washed by the ever-cleansing fountain of Christ's blood will behold his face. Do you realize that because of your sin, you really do deserve to be annihilated? But because of what Christ has done, this world is as close to hell as you will ever get. But the same could be said for the unbeliever. They deserve to be annihilated, and this world is as close to heaven as they will ever get. You see, this is what Christ has done. One day, the upright, those who have been declared right by Christ's finished work, will behold his face. I'm going to just close with this short lyric from the hymn. From him. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God, what, he is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. And earth and heaven be one. This is my father's world. Father, we come before you grateful that this indeed is your world and despite the wickedness that we might see, you are the ruler yet. And that we, we enjoy, we bask knowing that Christ is on his throne, that he has risen from the dead and he is on his, at your right hand and we await his return. We rejoice that he has declared us right <clears throat> and that one day we will behold his face. Oh God, let us rejoice in this. Help us, Lord. Cause us to hate our sin and to love Christ more and that in this dark world to trust in you that you are good and that you are sovereign and you are providentially working. In Christ's name, amen.
Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Thank you.